When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And if you're joining us for the very first time, we're glad you're here. If you've been around for a while, think about liking and subscribing, leaving a review, and go and check out our Instagram and Facebook pages. We have updates about all of our episodes that are coming out, and you can leave us suggestions of what bands you want us to do in the future, and we just might take you up on that. Um, If you've really been around for a while and you really love good music, definitely go into the description. There's a link to our Patreon page. It will take you to get us, uh, get you access to episodes early and also our exclusive After Hours segment where we talk about the worst songs of every band that we talk about every week. And that is probably some of the most fun we have on this podcast in those segments. So you definitely want to check that out. And I think that's all of the big ticket items for you guys. Um, but Thanks for listening in anyway, even if you're not going to become a patron or follow us on Instagram. We really appreciate just your support and helping us bring good music to the world. And so, unfortunately, we have some news. I say unfortunately because of some bad news. Um, We had a long string of musician deaths, and it's not over. So, um, Lucas, you should share that news. Obviously, when you guys are hearing this, it's been a a little bit now, but it's the day that we recorded this is that happened today that uh, Charlie Watts had passed away. Um, for those of you that don't know who that is, he is the drummer, the drummer for the Rolling Stones. I mean, they have had other, you know, f- you know, session and extra drummers. A lot of times I would say more recently, they've had two drummers just to help kind of burden or unburden the load since he was getting up there in age. He was 80 when he passed away today. But there has never been another official drummer for the Rolling Stones. So that means that he has been rock and roll's longest tenured drummer. I mean, especially for just one group. Mm -hmm. And so this is this is a huge blow to the music world. I mean, this is a Rolling Stone. We haven't had a Rolling Stone pass away since Brian Jones in 69. Yeah. And so this is this is one of the icons, and it's it's pretty sad, and it made it start it got me to think today, and I I thought it through and I realized that there's really only one major '60s rock and roll drummer left, and that's Ringo. Wow, because you think about all the other great bands and specifically all the great drummers of the '60s, we don't have John Bonham, we don't have Keith Moon. 
We don't have Mitch Mitchell of Jimi Hendrix. We don't have Ginger Baker of Cream. We don't have, um, obviously, we don't have Charlie Watts anymore. And I mean, like those are those are kind of like the main drummers when you think of drummers from the '60s, specifically in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, the only other really major one that most people would be familiar with is uh, Ringo. Yeah, and Ringo's already 81, 82 years old. Yeah, and he's still, you know, in he's, action. Yeah, and, and still looks great, and is is not at all retired or in poor spirits. But I mean, crazy thing is, neither was Charlie Watts. I mean, yeah. he he was going to go on tour, like because they had a twenty twenty tour planned. Obviously, that didn't happen because of COVID, but they had rescheduled. Um, all their dates for 2021 and like a month ago charlie had announced that he had had a a procedure at the hospital but that he was expected to make a full recovery and that he was going to have someone fill in for him on the tour just because his doctors told him he should rest and recuperate but that you know they should see him back soon and nobody thought anything of it and so this this was definitely unexpected it, it it it's very similar to what we just went through with Dusty Hill from ZZ Top. It was he dropped off the tour for a medical procedure. They didn't say what for, and they were saying he's going to bounce back and be back on the road here in a little bit. And then all of a sudden, we read that he's dead. Yeah, it's it's quite strange. It's so. it's, it's kind of sad when those things happen. Mm-hmm. So. Oh man! So, so anyway. yeah, rest rest in peace, Charlie. Uh, if you want to learn more about him, go check out our uh, our Rolling Stones episode that came out earlier this year. But um, I just I wanted to I wanted to mention that because that's just it's too big of a event to not um, to not mention. But the rest of the episode, we're gonna we're gonna talk about something much more happy. Yes, that is. Um, a band that is one of my all-time favorites. Um, we've already done an episode on them. For those of you that don't know, the second or the first episode of every month is a return to an artist that we've already done, a volume two, if you will. Although I would say a volume three is probably not too far off the horizon. Ooh. I won't say who it is yet, though. Well, but... it's definitely something we did a volume two on. Yes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but um we're gonna be talking about genesis Woo. and not only we're we gonna talk about genesis but i'm officially labeling september to be genesis appreciation month why because i say so yeah <laughs> um that doesn't mean we're gonna talk about genesis all month but you'll you'll see in the coming weeks what i mean by that but um Genesis is back together right now. Um, this is the first uh, tour that they have attempted to do in like 13 or 14 years. Attempted. Yeah. Well, cause I mean, I don't think the tour had, I think the tour has started officially at this point. Oh, so, um, so that's well, why I'm saying, it... I'm saying attempted. Cause I don't, I, I'm not completely sure that the tour has started yet. Oh, okay. And, I just didn't know if it was like they had made an attempt before and it didn't go so well. No, but that has happened before. 
Oh. In fact, that's that's the whole reason their previous tour happened. Um, but I'll get more into that later. Okay. Um, so right now, the, uh, the 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 version of Genesis that's going on tour is uh, Phil Collins, Tony Banks, and Mike Rutherford, which is kind of the core three of Genesis. And I have tickets to see them in Chicago in November, and so I'm really pumped about it, and so that's what's got me all excited. Let's just talk about Genesis. Mm-hmm. So... Um, what are Grant your first thoughts whenever I mention Genesis? Okay, so before we had planned to do this episode, I hadn't even listened to the volume one, but I knew that Genesis was kind of part of that, uh, like eighties pop ish kind of thing because I know my dad would always talk about them, but he'd never talk about them when he would talk about rock bands. So I'm like, oh, they must involve a lot of synthesizer to be like one of those kind of bands you know um i knew that phil collins was involved knew he was the drummer and the singer for a while um we talked about genesis during the peter gabriel episode and how peter gabriel was their vocalist for a while the original vocalist as far as i understand um and i understood like phil collins's sound obviously from the tarzan soundtrack and um from uh in the air tonight, which everybody knows that, you know. Um, but as far as Genesis themselves, I couldn't name a single song. Like, I probably would have known some. I didn't actually even look at the list from the volume one because I was so excited about the songs that we're going to talk about today. I just couldn't <laughs> stop listening to them. But uh, it was definitely an acquired taste, for sure, the songs today. But we'll get to that later. But... Um, well, actually, I guess that kind of does factor in my first thoughts. I mean, when we, we listened to it together, the set, and I had no real, I, I had the ideas of Genesis that I just told you. And it was kind of jarring because you said, oh, it's Prague. So I'm, I already have this picture in my mind of what it's going to sound like. And it did not sound very close, but you couldn't say that it was anything else. The music that we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was one of those where you had to listen over and over and over again before you said, OK, I now get it. Like I can pick apart where the little reprisals are. I can pick apart, you know, where the good parts are and where the kind of weird, crazy prog exploration parts are. And some of those kind of meld together in these weird ways. It was an acquired taste. Uh, Peter Gabriel's vocals, you know, uh, there were some weird stuff in there. But uh, and especially like the tone of his voice, too, and how he would like do these really intense harmonies. And so those things for like a first time listener, at least for me as a first time listener, those things didn't go together super well. But now I love it. It's this is a weird episode, you know, to start (laughs) off like a Genesis Appreciation Month to go like deep into like the 70s era with the with the real crazy stuff. But I think that if anyone listening is willing to give it a shot and actually willing to give it multiple listens through, even though it is a longer set, you will definitely not regret it. It is so enjoyable. It's so awesome. I'm saying way too much for first thoughts, so you should probably take it away. <laughs> well, what? so what number are oh, you starting with? Well, I'd have to go with the five because I didn't know the law. Okay, perfect. So, <laughs> Disclaimer, if you are new to Genesis, I would recommend to go listen to our first Genesis episode. 
before you continue with this one because this, the first Genesis episode was actually one of the very first episodes we ever did um, back when I was still making episodes with Justin. And that covers the pop era because I knew I knew when I did Genesis, even though it doesn't make sense chronologically to start with the later period, it's the easier period to get into and at least gives you a kind of a, a foundation to set, stand upon. Right. And and it's also that's what I, how I was introduced to Genesis. Um, Genesis is one of my dad's all time favorite groups. And so that was on that little iPod that I really received in eighth grade when my dad said i'm gonna make you listen to this and you're gonna thank me for it later and um i there were there were three groups in particular that were like the first things that i latched onto on that ipod and that was uh coldplay journey and genesis slash phil collins i mean i kind of i kind of melded those two together yeah but Genesis was one of my very first musical loves. And obviously my dad's a pop fan, so he didn't have any of the 70s stuff on there. It was it was their 80s greatest hits record. And boy, is that a beefy greatest hits record because <laughs> they made a lot of great pop songs in the 80s and a little bit in the late 70s and the early 90s as well. It was like it's like their pop period pretty much spans from like 78 to 91. That's a pretty good run. Yeah. I would say an 86 was kind of like the, was like when it was at its peak. Uh, 86 was the peak for everyone. Well, yeah. And it was the peak for <laughs> Phil Collins as a solo star. Uh, that's true. And so it, it bled over into Genesis. But yeah, so I, I latched on very, very early to Genesis have been a Genesis fan for a large part of my life now, but for a long time, the eighties pop stuff was the only stuff of theirs that I heard. And even, and even then I didn't really get into the actual albums. I just listened to that greatest hits over and over and over again and loved just about every song on it. And it was when I got to college, I think it was like my second year at college when I really started to get deep into prog because in high school, you know, I listened to rush. I listened to dream theater, but that was like the only prog that I listened to. Once I got to college, that's when I really got into yes. Um, started to get into some Emerson Lake and Palmer and um, some Vandegraaff generator and kind of the more hardcore prog. And then that's when I kind of like, and I'd always known that Genesis had a prog era, but I just never thought to go check it out. And finally I was just like, Oh yeah, I'm, I need to check out their seventies stuff. Cause apparently it's like some of the best prog of all time. And so the first one that I got was Foxtrot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause I saw, I saw on iTunes that it had a 23 minute song on it. I was just like, well, I got to start with this one. Oh, yeah. So, and it did not disappoint. And then from there, I got Selling England by the Pound. And then Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And those were like the three prog albums that I owned that introduced me to that era of Genesis. Foxtrot was 72, wasn't it? Yes. So, I mean, think 70... about what's going around at 72. Yeah, 72, 73, 74. Is. 
Right. So they were part of that. They were part of that first wave of Prague for sure. Mm. But so coming into this episode, this is a band from both eras that has influenced me significantly. And they're, they're a band that I always talk about how I have my four pillars, but then there's that fifth pillar that is ever changing. Mm-hmm. Genesis could fit in in that fifth spot. That's how important they are to me. Ooh, that is that is some high talk because Dream Theater also occupies that spot. Yes, and you know how much of a fan I am of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and again, I want to stress, I am I am a fan of both eras of Genesis. It's really, honestly, quite hard for me to pick which one I like more. I have a little bit more nostalgia for the for the pop era but man the 70s period was so good so it's 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 hard my brain i think wants to go towards the prog stuff but my heart kind of lies with the 80s so they, either what they, they hold that nine or ten spot yeah i would i would say about as close to a 10 as you can get high nine high nine man so that's that's where I'm starting off coming into this episode. You might not even be able to move. I I, mean, don't I would down. say that I fractionally move, but I'll I'll talk about that in final thoughts. Right, right, right. Um so let's talk about Genesis themselves. So Yes. Um when Genesis was in their prog era, they were a five piece band. Right. And they're they're a London band, so English group. First album came out in '69, so they are they are over 50 years old at this point. Did they start with the five? No. So the original three starting members were Peter Gabriel on lead vocals, uh, Mike Rutherford on bass, and Tony Banks on keyboards. And both Mike and Tony are the two never changing members okay they're the only two to be on every record mm-hmm. and they're they're going to be two of the three genesis members that are going to be on this new tour okay so they are really they're the leaders of the band everyone always looks to either peter or phil during their respective areas mm-hmm. but really they're the creative forces behind genesis mm-hmm. they are the they are the to the public, they're the silent partners. Within the band, they're the not-so-silent partners. Oh. And usually any friction that existed within the band was other members of the band trying to contribute their ideas and Tony and Mike not accepting them because they oh. had the of what it needed to be. Okay. So you had you had those three core members starting – then you had um, Anthony Phillips was their original guitar player, and he was on the first two records. Mm-hmm. And then they had a they had an ever fluctuating roster of drummers before Phil came on the third record. Oh, he came on the third. Mm-hmm. Which would have been that would have been Nursery Crime, which was in seventy one. He joined oh. in seventy. Got to do his first record with them in '71, and that was uh, Nursery Crime is kind of considered like the beginning of their great prog period. Although we don't have any songs represented 
from it. There's a there's there's two really great songs on that record, Musical Box and uh, The Fountain of Salmasses. But it's definitely the album where they're expanding into Prague. Right. And then, it, then, of course, I guess they figure it out by the next one. Yeah. So Foxtrot is what came after that. And that's kind of when they became serious contenders in the Prague world and just in the underground uh, music scene in general. Um, they they have a very, very different, like you were saying, uh, listening to them about how you were expecting it to be Prague and then it was not at all what you thought it was going to sound like. Right, but it was still very Prague. That was the thing about early 70s Prague, that first movement. Mm-hmm. Every band sounded quite different from each other. Prague, nice. Prague was not a genre that had set um, rules or stereotypes, cliches that that came when the the further generations were trying to build upon what they had done, and they tried mm. to find what were the similarities. But really, every band is from that period is so unique. The whole thing about it pretty much is just you got to be experimental and you got to push the limits of music. I mean, so you really was rock. Yeah, in, you. You even talked about in our Yes episode about how it still was just like this. This isn't prog like I'm used to hearing mm-hmm. because kind of our brains are raised on the idea of prog in the way of Rush and Dream mm-hmm. Theater and to where it's like you have long songs that have these specific types of instrumental passages. Yes. Um, you Your big songs have to have all these recurring themes and um you know it's it's going to be structured in this way there's got to be tons of shredding and and complex time yeah. signatures and it's mm-hmm. got to be it's got to be showing off how great of a musician they are mm-hmm. and and all the lyrics have to be about like fantastical things and this cryptic you know lyric and then you've got to have that instrumental section and then they all play together this really complex melody and then Eight million solos. Yeah, and you don't hear that on, like, We Have Heaven, for example. No. Not or, at all. Uh, or else And You it? and I. Right. But it, exactly. And that, and we had that one on our episode. But what else would it be? That's kind of the same thing with Genesis. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So Genesis ha- were really able to carve their own identity. And I would say that during the early period... Like you, you had a big three of Prague, really a big four. But Pink Floyd, even though they were Prague, they didn't compete squarely with these other Prague groups. They just they lived literally in a world of their own. But you had you had yes, Genesis and King Crimson as kind of like the major three Prague groups of the early seventies. Right, right. I mean, you had King Crimson that really started the whole thing. Uh, 69's in the Court of the Crimson King is like the first major prog record. Oh man, what a good album. Yes. <laughs> uh, I have it on vinyl and it's it's sweet to listen to in that way. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Um, and then you have Yes. Now really, Yes were the leaders. They got the most exposure. Mm-hmm. Had the most crossover appeal. And they kind of had the most like superstar players like 
Yes had the best instrumentalists of all the prog groups of that time. And they had a pretty dang good vocalist, too. Yes. Genesis, they were almost, they were the scrappy guys in the prog scene. Um, The thing that I felt like made them stand out is that a lot of prog in the early 70s really tried to throw off its Englishness. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this, you listen to Yes, and you almost get a lot of, you get a lot of Eastern influence, a yes, lot of sure. just generalized Western sounds because they're they're pulling a lot from classical music. And um, they just, they don't, you listen to them and you could be easily fooled into not knowing that they're an English group. Mm-hmm. Genesis is 100% an English group. Like they're they they overemphasize their accents, their lyrical content is all steeped in English society and English folklore. Um, they whenever they do talk about fantastical things, it's always rooted in English uh, tradition. And so mm. that's I think that the, and because of that, because they're not trying to be very um, zen or very mystical they they are very much more straightforward they're a lot more humorous they they rely on humor a lot more in their lyrics and in the way that they will approach some of their musical ideas um peter gabriel loves to use different voices for different characters and not just sing it straight it's very performance like like performance theater where it's it's less to do about wow look how skilled everyone is in the group it's more about the overall um performance of the piece ah they were it's prog for the listener's sake really well also very much prog for the viewer's sake of all the early 70s prog groups they probably also had the most insane live shows ah because like peter gabriel would dress up in the weird stuff yes <laughs> like he he was a he was prog's craziest front man like oh, most of the things that you see from spinal tap genesis did <laughs> like the whole the whole scene where the pods come down and Derek gets stuck in one of the pods mm-hmm. that actually was like verbatim what happened in a Genesis show <laughs> um, Peter was supposed to descend from the top of the stage in a pod and the microphone cable got caught in the system and so it got stuck and he couldn't get out <laughs> Yeah, kind of funny. And they had they it was a it was a high risk, high reward. Like mm-hmm. obviously when it worked, they got incredible stage production. But also at the same time, very much so it veered off into either it being too cartoonish and too over the top, or the thing just didn't work. Mm-hmm. There was a there was another moment where for the ending of Supper's Ready he was intended to be hoisted by wires up to where it looked like he was flying. Oh, no. But when he got up there, it started to turn. And so he ended up singing the final part of that song 
with his back facing the audience because he couldn't control the way the wires were moving. <laughs> and so they, the reports say that he, you could see him like kicking and trying to, trying to center himself while also at the same time trying not to draw too much attention to the fact that this was not how it was supposed to look. Okay, that is that is very Spinal Tap. Yes. <laughs> but, but I mean, again, like, go big or go home. Yeah, I mean, the, the points where it did work, I mean, they had the best show in Prague. So... Um, that really isn't a thing that you think about anymore with Prague bands. Is yeah. The By the way, I'm, I'm now feeling quite silly because I didn't include the fifth member of the classic lineup oh, of the 70s. Yeah. That's Steve Hackett on guitar. He came on the same record that Phil did, the third one, Nursery Cry. So really, the... Yeah, okay. Man, that's... I I feel really bad about that because that's kind of always been Steve's legacy is he's the forgotten man of the band. Well, because like from these songs, you can kind of like guitar isn't featured as much. No, the times that it is, it's amazing. Oh, for sure. For the, like, the times that it is, it almost makes me miss it as a guitarist. Mm-hmm. And that was one of those things that and, and the bass being the root and not a melodic instrument. Right. Yeah. The, distinct I don't want to say distinct lack but the distinct difference from how prog guitars bass and lead are usually played was really really weird for me as a guitarist because I was in that mindset and I have that mindset now after listening to a bunch of prog but mm-hmm. yeah so I, I definitely can see why he is the forgotten because he's you know he's back in the mix but at the same time when he gets his moment they're great moments yeah and he was really revolutionary. He um, is really actually the one that is credited for um, introducing the tapping method on guitar. I like, noticed that. All the people that um, like to to kind of take the credit away from Eddie Van Halen, they always give it to Steve Hackett. I did notice that when I was listening through. I'm like, wait a minute. And it was it was on, you know one of the foxtrot songs that we have on here and i'm like wait a minute that sounds like tapping that can't be like a keyboard sound that was doubled because it sounds way too much like a guitar it yeah sounds... it was yeah and i was like it must it had to have been yeah but, wow. obviously at that time genesis wasn't as big of a band as van halen was so van halen definitely popular and he also really perfected it but you've got to give Steve Hackett the credit for really kind of being the first major guitarist to feature it. And not just in that song, but there's a lot, there's several Genesis songs where he's doing a lot of tapping. That's just like, Whoa, this is ahead of its time. Yeah. They do seem very ahead of their time. The stuff that were, I mean, obviously that's it's remixed now. So it sounds great, but it sounds much more complex than the other stuff that's coming out at around the seventies, at least that we've had, on the podcast like the early 70s stuff i mean rush didn't even exist let alone get into their heavy heavy prog stuff and really they yes i said that genesis was one of the main bands that expired inspired them to not just be a a blues rock group and to to take the the progressive route yeah and and those first king crimson albums they were not technical i mean they were definitely experimental yeah you had your technical moments like the that instrumental section in 21st Century Schizoid Man is still 
one of the more technical moments oh, true. in Prague, period. True. But they definitely relied more on atmosphere. Yeah, and they, they didn't get into some of the um, little details that are thrown in as much as Genesis gets in some yeah. instances. Mm-hmm. And so... So yeah, Foxtrot, that was kind of the that was the breakthrough record for them. Even though it didn't have a hit single, Supper's Ready kind of became like just a cult classic, especially when they performed it live. That was kind of like that started to become the new thing of, whoa, you gotta come see these guys play this massive song. As well as it was on the promotion for Foxtrot that Peter Gabriel really started to make headlines as a, um, as a front man. Um, the moment during musical box where he came out in the dress with the Fox head and just started to bang away at the tambourine. That was a, that was a front page headline in melody maker, <laughs> which was wow. the big music publication at that time. And so it was like Genesis was an unknown group, but because they were Peter Gabriel was constantly doing shocking stuff on stage, at least shocking for that time. It kind of helped get that spotlight on them. But of course, that ended up becoming a double-edged sword, but because Peter Gabriel was the one that was attracting the attention, everyone started to assume that he was the leader of the band. Right. And that didn't sit well with Tony and Mike. Mm -hmm. And Peter never let it go to his head, but it did give him more confidence to start resting creative control mm-hmm. to where he, his confidence grew. Mm-hmm. And so he's just like, I can do this. I can, I can come up with songs. I can contribute more lyrics. I can, he really um, took control of everything stage. Mm-hmm. Um, the guys in Genesis said that, you know, when tours started, they didn't know what costumes he was going to use. They didn't know what he was going to do because Peter knew that if he showed them what he was going to do beforehand, that they would never stop debating about, well, what color should it be? Well, maybe for the flower costume, it should be this kind of flower instead of that kind of flower. And Peter was just like, and I already knew that that was just going to slow things down way too much. So I just hid it from them. And I told them, you'll find out whenever we get there. Hmm. And I guess they were okay with that because that's what happened. Yeah. So Foxtrot does well. And because of that, uh, Selling England by the Pound, which was the follow-up, ended up being a huge record. Like, not just huge for, um, you know, for Prague, but that in, uh, in England, it actually ended up becoming a, pretty it reached number three on the album charts oh my so like what year is that 73 74 no 73 wow and so yeah that was kind of when they really started to get big they even had a a, a top 40 single with i know what i like in your wardrobe in the uk still again they they really were not at all gaining traction in america because america was really not into Prague. right but in England and in Europe in general, they were really becoming quite a big band. They were becoming a, one of the biggest underground groups in the world. And then um, after that was The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And that 
was the last record that they did with Peter. So is that the uh, famous concept record that you were alluding to? Yes. It is a double record. Oh. And it is a concept of something. Not No one can really agree on what it is. The band doesn't know what it's about. Peter has even admitted that he doesn't really know what he was trying to go for. <laughs> There's like a who's next situation, but they kept going. Well, yeah, he the way that he describes it is that it's it's a Pilgrim's Progress story in New York. Okay. It's not it's not plot driven. It's more like a a sequence of hallucinogenic events. Okay. You can't you you can't follow the story based on this happened and then this happened. Cuz if you do, it will make no sense whatsoever. So you could see it, it more as a metaphorical like spiritual journey. Okay. But even then it's 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 hard to determine what the lessons learned are or what everything is supposed to mean. Is the music good? Oh yeah, the music's great. Oh good. Because just like though any double concept record, it's going to have its filler moments. Mhm. I think that if they hadn't been limited by the 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 vinyl itself, the fact that you have to fill four sides of 20 minutes, mm-hmm. I think that if had it been three sides, it would have been perfect. Oh, that is kind of sad. And I feel like that that's the case with most double records. There's been very few double records that I've ever heard that justify all four sides. That's a good thing to remember in case anyone's wanting to do a double record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, nowadays when people do a double record, it means double CD. And that's, well, that's even rarer. That's even rarer that it justifies its run length. That's a whole lot of music. Because that's... that's 90 minutes per disc that you can uh, fill up. Yeah, wow. That is. That's three hours of music that you could do. Well, close to, but yeah. And there's there's people back in the day in the 70s that did triple vinyl records. I bet that was pretty bad. Mm, you would think so, but like George Harrison's first solo record was a triple record, and it's considered one of the great rock records. Hmm. Now again, that is an exception. I mean, he's George Harrison, so and it was his first post Beatles release, so you know, he was riding off a great artistic wave there. Um but yeah, it's with Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, if you were to cut out a side worth of stuff, I mean obviously you'll probably lose a couple of great moments but there are there is a lot of things in there that you listen to and you're just like oh I feel like the main reason this is here is because they have to meet the time requirement but overall it is a very worthwhile listen I would say in particular the first half is among the best prog music ever written that is that is a big statement. Yeah, I don't there's see a, that lightly. There's a lot of prog music out there that's good. Well, there's a lot out mm-hmm. there that's bad too. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, 
but unfortunately, um, making that record almost broke the band. And in a way, it did break the band because Peter on the tour of that record is just like, I can't do this anymore. Oh, man. So they didn't even finish the tour. He did finish the tour. They okay. He originally wasn't going to, and they convinced him to at least stay because they mm-hmm. knew that they could not do this tour without him. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And then, you know, they had the whole problem of finding the next guy. Yeah. So, but that's that's kind of where our next or our previous episode picks up on. Yes. So, um, so yeah, that's, we're looking at a period from 69 to 74. That's the, uh, that's the first era of Genesis. So Uh, were they, were they during this period, were they like one of those bands that was very turbulent? Um, because they were, but not like, in. You're speaking like they are, not in the way that you would normally think. It wasn't a lot of shouting matches and throwing objects, and it was all very passive aggressive. Ah, uh, that's that's almost worse. Yes, <laughs> like it was more of people just leaving the room and not coming back for several hours. Or underhandedly sabotaging other members. So when when Peter Gabriel left, it was not on good terms. Um, it wasn't on good terms with Mike and Tony. Phil said that, like, because Phil was the only one that Peter really confided in before he left, and Phil has gone on to say it's just like I get a lot of the blame for Peter leaving because people assumed that I wanted his job as the vocalist mm-hmm. and that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, Phil or Peter and I's relationship has never been on bad terms. We were great friends when we were in the band together. We remained great friends with each other. When he left, I've played on his solo records. He's played on mine. You know, there's, there's no bad blood between us at all weird it's just it's just that's the way that it happened Mm -hmm. the biggest the biggest reason why peter left was at the time they were recording that record um his first kid was born but Uh born in a uh unfortunate circumstance where i think the baby was like several weeks early had to be put in the icu and he approached the band and said, Hey, you know, this is a, this is a tough situation. My wife had just had a very tough pregnancy. You know, we're having a tough time with the kid. I need time off. And the band said, no, you're either in or you're out. Wow. And so Peter was just like, okay, fine. Well then I guess I'm out. I'm going to, I mean, he didn't tell them that, but he like in his mind at that point made up. I was just like, okay, I'm going to, finish the record because that's what I'm obligated to do. But after that, I'm leaving Mm -hmm. because I'm not going to, I'm not going to live in an environment where the band is going to require my devotion over my family. That's, that's very respectable of him. Yeah. And he was really the only one with a family at that point. So it was, but the other members of the band have 
in the future said that we look back on that and we're pretty ashamed of the way that we treated Peter. Mm-hmm. We sh- we should have been a lot better to him in those circumstances. We just we just were not in that phase of life and we just didn't understand. To us, the band was the most important thing. See, that's weird because he was a founding member. Mm-hmm. You'd but think, again, you'd think they'd understand, like, hey, this guy pretty much is part of the core of the band, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, even though he was a founding member, the power has always really, truly lied with Tony and Mike. Right. That's That's where all of the creative, even when Phil became a huge solo star and became the main attraction of the group he was not the one that steered them towards pop music that was tony and mike's decision they wanted to become pop songwriters and then they realized oh man we've got an incredible pop songwriter let's let's start using those talents to get us into a pop atmosphere it worked out for them yeah, I, I don't want to present that as like manipulative, like they tricked Phil into doing that. But it was like, <laughs> again, a lot of the blame always goes to Phil because they're like, oh, Phil turned them into a pop group. Mm. And Phil's the one of those three that looks back the most fondly on their 70s stuff. Mike and Tony don't have as many fond memories of the 70s catalog as Phil does. Obviously, Steve loved all that. He's when he left the group later on, he like stayed a prog musician. All his solo stuff is all prog albums. And from what I've heard, I haven't listened to very much of it, but from what I've heard, he was pretty good. Made some good stuff. That that makes sense though, because this is some pretty technical drumming. Mm-hmm. From what you'd expect from Phil Collins, right? I know what you'd expect from in the air tonight, you know? Yeah. There's some intense drumming going on. And it's also weird to know that Peter and Phil were such good, you know, buds. Because we talk a lot about on this podcast especially about the um Dave Mustaine, Metallica rivalry and how they just like hated each other's guts, right? Uh, back in like the early mid eighties. And I thought that's kind of what the situation was here. Mm -hmm. And turns out, well, I guess I'm part of the average um, listener, right? Because you said, like, most people (laughs) thought that uh, Phil wanted him out. But that's good to hear, I guess. Yeah. Because if, since they are being, well, I guess Peter's not going to be touring with them. No. Well, okay. If he was, then at least... He has Phil. Yes. But um, that that's good to see that they're not, even when they're putting out their solo work, that they're not trying to compete. You no. Know, sometimes that competition will get you some great stuff. In the case of Metallica and Megadeth, right? Megadeth had to be faster, louder, you know, heavier, right? And that's how you got some really fast, loud, heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. But both Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel became big solo artists as well. I mean, we talked about Peter Gabriel in his own episode before we even talked about the Peter Gabriel era of Genesis. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that should show you that he's a big 
you know, he's an important musical figure. And of course, everyone knows the name Phil Collins. So that's good to hear. I don't know if there's not a real conclusion from that. I'm just saying that's good to hear. (laughs) I also want to just like take this in this episode and, and upcoming is going to be my in defense of Phil Collins. Because one of the things I don't understand is all of the crap that Phil Collins receives from like the from the music world. Like, there's so many people that I hear it's just like Phil Collins is lame, Phil Collins is dumb, Phil Collins ruined Genesis, Phil Collins isn't that good of a drummer. He just goes, <laughs> and like, yeah, you've, like you've, yeah, you've got like that South Park episode where they're. Like they make Phil Collins the bad guy, <laughs> and and the whole like the big statement at the end is they're at the audience listening to him sing, and they're just like, "Man, Phil Collins sucks." And I'm just like, "You take that back, South Park! How dare you be offensive?" <laughs> that was sarcasm, in case y'all didn't pick up on that. But <laughs> that's the overall consensus that people have of Phil is that they don't like him. Mm-hmm. And they think that he's a mediocre drummer. They think the only reason people talk about him being a significant drummer is because he did it while he was singing and because he came up with that in there tonight drum break. So this is kind of like an extension of that statement in the first episode that Phil was intentionally holding back so that he could sing and drum and that he wouldn't de-pop the pop music. Yeah, and actually one of the things that I found out even more is that he, when he played live, he actually rarely sang and played. Oh. Because he knew that as long as he was behind the kit, that was going to hinder his ability to connect with the audience. And so what they actually did is they had two drummers on tour. Obviously, one of them was him, and he would go get on the kit for like maybe four or five songs. But then they had another drummer that was up there. That was like their like kind of permanent touring drummer that would play for the majority of the show. So Phil could be up at the front of the stage, actually connecting and engaging with the audience. That's a smart, but sad decision. Yeah. Cause he is a drummer, you know? Yeah, and he it was a hard decision to get him to become the front man. Again, don't don't take the 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 stance that he he was waiting for this opportunity to to become the lead singer. Like he did everything in his power to try every other option. Mm-hmm. And then just when literally there was no other choice, he said, "Fine." And even then he said, "But this is only temporary." Mhm. And then it just it just never stopped. <laughs> but Phil Collins is an incredible drummer, and the the songs on this episode are going to prove that to you. Like when I first listened to Foxtrot, I like had to double check and make sure that Phil Collins was the drummer at this point. Yeah, yeah. Because I was. It's not even that. It's like, oh, this is pretty good for Phil Collins. Like there's several things he's doing that I'm just like I'm not even I'm, I don't think I could play that well it's 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 very cerebral it's not so much the notes that he's playing but the fact that how do you count you know yes. what you're playing that kind of stuff 
the mind bending stuff is really the hard stuff. Uh-huh. You know, anybody can practice and practice and practice and play fast notes, right? Well, yeah, okay. which he does also have. Some, he has an in, amazing amount of speed, in, right? In, but that's in his playing. That's not what stood out to me, at least, and that's not what he shows as much as the how do you keep the band together kind of mm-hmm. kind of music. And he does it in a way that it's, it's very unorthodox and very creative. Yeah. He, some, of, some of the places that he puts his hits and the way he constructs some of his fills, <laughs> pun, um, <laughs> it was just like, this is really bizarre. And I'm actually kind of quite um, ashamed that I'm just now figuring this out, but I'm just now learning that he plays a left-handed kit and that he's left-handed. Oh, wow. So that also cre- makes things a lot more interesting. It does. And again, that's that's one of those things I'm shocked that I never realized up until this point. Even watching the live uh, stuff. Well, that's when I was when I was watching because I didn't watch live stuff when I got ready for the first Genesis episode because that my research hadn't really been that intense yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was getting ready for this, and I was watching, and I was like. Wait, wait a second. Oh my gosh, he's playing a left-handed kit. Oh my gosh. Did you like check to make sure the video wasn't backwards or anything? Yeah, like I was thinking maybe maybe it's just it's flipped because of like copyright purposes or But the guitars were right. Yep. And then yeah, the more I looked at it, I was just like, no, that's that's a left-handed kit. Okay. Hmm. And I've always found that the left-handed drummers, even when they're playing on a true left-handed kit. It always adds this weird element to it. Mm-hmm. They have that extra little bit of secret sauce. It's different. It's like a, a left-handed guitar player. Yeah. There's just something that's a little off, that they don't sound quite normal. And that's not in like a good or bad way. It's just a different sound. Yeah. So, anyway. Well, but it's I, also... I think- Okay, go ahead. Well, what were you gonna say? I was gonna, I was gonna try to guide us to the songs because we got a lot to talk about. But there is, we... there is one other th- aspect that I wanted to talk about. Okay, and that is the compositional nature of Genesis Prague uh, releases. Because we we had kind of talked about this together on our own, but I wanted to kind of jump back into the fact that when they compose their music we're used to listening to Prague as being like um, the complexity coming from the parts. Like you listen to like, yes, they don't use a whole lot of different time signatures. And when they do, it's not in these intentionally complex ways. Rather, it's more of a sensible arrangement and the parts themselves are really tough. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I realized about Genesis prog songs and why I felt like I could learn Yes songs and Rush songs so much easier, and I more just had to practice on, okay, I got to just play the part. Genesis, it's really hard to figure out the arrangements of the songs. The way the way that they're put together, that's what makes them complex and very difficult to figure out. 
Mm-hmm. They're yes, at times they are playing some very intricate pieces, but the way that they use time signatures and the way that they put their songs together is really complicated. Mm. And I think that that approach also is one of the things that sets them apart from the other prog groups of that time. And from all other prog groups really that come afterwards. It reminds me a little bit more of Opeth writing style. Ah, where you're just kind of getting immersed. Yes. It's more like our symphony episode. Yes. But when you actually start to really try and figure it out, you're just like, I actually am really having a tough time following where each measure starts and ends. It all just kind of blends together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, a little bit. And a big part of that is, and this is something I'm, I'm finding I'm doing more and more with artists, is trying to figure out who the lead instrumentalists are. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at a band like Yes, or even... Um, even Rush to a certain extent. The guitar is one of the lead instruments. It's what's driving the song. Mm-hmm. And usually the bass in Prague as well. Mm-hmm. Drums usually kind of will sit in that middle area. Like you have someone like Neil Peart who is definitely playing lead drums, but at the same time, he is providing such a solid foundation for the band to sit on. Mm-hmm. That it's not it's not veering out into wild, crazy territory. It's flashy and interesting in the exact right measure. Look at Yes. Bill Bruford is one of the least flashiest members of Yes. Even though he is a incredibly talented drummer, his first um, priority is to keep things straight and solid. Right, and then... You could also talk about keyboards and how they're even less, you know, featured. I mean, especially we can talk about Dream Theater. Jordan Rudess is amazing. But when you listen to like a Dream Theater riff, you're not necessarily going to pick out the keyboard first thing. He's got great solos, great moments. There's little textures added. And that's the same thing that I notice usually with a lot of Rush songs. Is even when Getty was big into keyboards, that was always an added texture. It was never the lead instrument. Mm-hmm. But here in some of the Genesis songs, there's some like keyboard driven moments and definitely some keyboard driven sections and even really songs. Yeah, I would say that Tony Banks and Phil Collins are the lead players in this era of Genesis. Completely backwards. Yeah. That's why it sounds so weird. Uh-huh. Because you really well, you'll hear keyboard solos way more often than you'll hear guitar solos. The keyboards are are carrying a large uh, load of the the hooks and the riffs and the melodic parts. Like you, you're not as likely to go, oh, look at this guitar part in a Genesis song. You're going to be going, man, look at that keys part. Yeah, uh, the bass is usually fairly simple. Although Mike Rutherford, when you really pay attention, is doing some intricate stuff. It's just not overtly intricate it's not chris squire it's not getty lee it's it's a it's a bit more myung where Mm -hmm. now obviously myung has his moments where he just like unleashes and does something really stupid but in a good way yeah but for the most part you don't notice that myung is there because he's doing exactly just what he needs to do 
and Mike does the same thing on bass. Now, obviously, the vocals are always going to be a lead instrument in your group. It's very rare when you have vocals that they're not. Most of the time, if the vocals aren't the lead instrument, it's because you don't have vocals. You're an instrumental group. Right. Um, but, yeah, to see the main instrumentalist be the drums and the keyboard, it's – I mean, obviously, you have Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. That's – that is the dynamic in that group because there's only three guys and there's no guitar player. It's a keyboardist, a bassist, and a drummer. Yeah. And so the the keyboards and the drums in particular do take the center stage in that group, but also it's just it's really different because you don't even have that extra level of texture with a guitar. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the one of the other things that when you're listening to these songs, kind of key in on that because it really makes for a, a an interesting listening experience because you don't see many bands do that. Right. With that. I think that that'll be a good time for us to um, move on into the next segment. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the six songs from the Peter Gabriel era of Genesis that we have picked out for this episode. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Genesis, their Peter Gabriel period in the 70s for a long time. I think we're both very excited for this next segment, which is our six song segment. Every episode, we pick six songs to introduce the band. Usually for episodes, we're trying to introduce the band. But in this case, we're trying to introduce you guys to the Peter Gabriel era, the huge prog era. And these six songs are going to be the best introduction. They're going to have a great flow from start to finish. They're not necessarily going to be the best or the favorite of ours or favorite of Lucas. He does pick the songs. Um, But if you want to listen to them, and you definitely should, because you will not understand anything we're saying if you don't listen to them, I promise you. Um, Go down into the description of every episode. There is a link to a Spotify playlist. It has not only these songs, but all of the songs from all of the previous episodes. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Listen to these songs. And if you see any other songs they're interested in, we have an episode about that specific song. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in that playlist. So definitely go check out that playlist, listen to the songs. And without any further ado, let's get into our first song before I waste too much time introducing this segment. And that is... Watcher of the Skies. And so we start right off in Foxtrot with a keyboard intro. So already letting us know what we should pay attention to. Yes. So this ain't just any keyboard either. We got that that sweet, sweet Mellotron. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that this is such an iconic tone that now a lot of uh, keyboards with presets will have a watcher's tone. Yes. This is this has become one of the most iconic moments of the Mellotron. Obviously, when most people think of it, they think of like the Beatles in the late 60s and kind of just that psychedelic era in general. Um, the Mellotron, it's, it's quite a unique instrument and Mm -hmm. it really had, it had limited use in what it could do, but the people that knew how to use it right really got some cool stuff out of it. That Mellotron actually, the one they used originally belonged to King Crimson and King Crimson pawned it off on them because they said that it was too unreliable, but here, this younger band can have it, I guess. That makes so much sense now listening to some of the tones that we hear in the rest of the set 
It sounds very Court of the Crimson King. Yeah. So yeah, you've got this. You've got this great spacey intro, and that's the again we are introduced right off the bat to the theatricality of Genesis. Mm-hmm. It's and gonna, it sounds it sounds very like in a weird way empty. Yeah. Like like this is the palette upon which the song will create itself, and this is the opening for Foxtrot, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it is. So there you go. It's the way that this was. This was my first taste of '70s Genesis. Ah, so we're really like taking people. Okay, we're really not because this is we we get off of Foxtrot after this, but this would be the same trajectory which you took for mm-hmm. seven minutes and twenty three seconds. Yes, <laughs> um, I think that I think through this song, you're gonna you're gonna solidify everything that you need to either learn or unlearn about Genesis. Because mm-hmm. if you're if you're coming from the perspective of man, I just listened to their 80s stuff and you have all of those those incorrect misconceptions that I talked about in the first segment, mm-hmm. this is gonna immediately like challenge all of them. Yeah, really. It, it, and then you know the band fades in and you've got Phil Collins doing some crazy stuff yeah this this definitely this is the first song i mean obviously it's the first song but we listened to this and the bass was so like it sounded so simple because it wasn't doing anything from from my ears like it wasn't moving around they're like who's walking the bass like there's no slapping or weird melodies or anything but the more i listened to it the more i realized like that's exactly what it needed to be i was just trying to put my my predetermined template of what prog should be Mm -hmm. and you know obviously not for everyone i hope it is for everyone who's listening to this episode because great song so and it's the the verse sits really weird time-wise that's kind of one of those things that you're talking about where it's like how do you stay together it kind of just it's it's hard to find where the measure ends and the next one begins. Yeah. And that's another one of the things that really makes Genesis so unique during this time period is that you, the way Peter Gabriel inserted vocals is really weird and unorthodox. Mm -hmm. He, he really got creative, not just with the timing, but with the melodies and a lot of weird word choices. Yeah. Yeah. Although he didn't write this song. This was written by uh, Tony and Mike. Oh, so they did the lyrics. Yeah. And then they just, they all contributed ideas like that. That whole rhythmic meter was came up by Phil. Mm-hmm. Actually, after seeing a Yes show, <laughs> um, he saw them because think about it, This is about the time of, of Fragile and Close to the Edge when Yes was at like their peak. And... Mm-hmm. Y- Phil saw them and he was just like, gosh, dang, they're so good. We got to up our game. We got to start getting some more technical stuff in there mm-hmm. because yes is yes is kicking our butts right now. And so <laughs> that was his idea was he came up with this rhythm. It was like, Hey, can we put this in a song? And they're like, Oh yeah, well let's, let's put this in. And that became watcher of the skies. Wow. So is this, would you consider this a staple of the Prague era? Yes. Like the master I, of puppets. 
I mean, I wouldn't say it's the master of puppets. I would say it's the, um, like, I would, man, what, what's a great thrash? I would call this the, uh, the battery of the thrash era, where it's, ah. it's a really great technical groundbreaking song, but it doesn't, there, there are other prog songs that have that more iconic stature, but it's one of those ones that, like, you know, when you look at the prog era, and you're going to grab a couple of songs from each artist. This is one of the ones you'll want to grab. Gotcha, gotcha. And this is this has definitely become one of the the classic uh, Genesis prog songs. Mm-hmm. This was this was either always their opener or the first song of their encore okay you well it does have that opening mellotron mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean yeah you you have a dark stage and you just start with that it's going to be very striking oh man yeah and and uh peter gabriel's outfit for this was always pretty um pretty terrifying what do you mean so he would put on fluorescent face paint and have a batwing headdress. That is kind of weird. So, because the stage would be pitch black, and whenever the Mellotron would start, the only thing you could see is his face. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's it's a pretty startling image. Hmm. I guess I'll have to look it up. So, yeah, I mean, all of his costumes are are pretty disturbing to some degree. Hmm. It's not it's not meant to like get you like, oh, this is really this that's beautiful. That's really what it's it's usually got some kind of like macabre element to it. Ah, uh, pre ghost. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's and also just peter gabriel's face during that i don't that's might sound really rude to say that he had a scary face but it was, he was very thin like kind of had the sunken cheeks and the very angular shaped face ah skinny and, yeah and <laughs> so just when you combine that with a lot of the makeup choices he made a lot of the costume choices he made um it usually made for a, a fairly surprising and unsettling image which is exactly what he wanted so have to ask as we always do what is this song about this was written from the perspective of a an alien kind of looking at an empty earth and what he would see the the kind of the uh the lonely visitor like either maybe in a post-apocalyptic Earth or an early period in the Earth before life has begun. Hmm. And kind of either someone that is that is ruminating on the history of man or someone that is about to create the history of man. So and like is is it just jargon or is there like a like a message to it? Um you kind of really don't know with Gabriel Genesis. That's going <laughs> to kind of be one of the tough things when we talk about lyrics mm-hmm. is that it's usually so full of metaphor and 
kind of intentionally hiding the meaning that you wonder if there is a meaning. You can go off of what they tell you it's about in the instances that you do get that, which in this case we do. But also at the same time, you when you read through it, you can kind of tell it's less about telling a story and more of like kind of just setting a a setting. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 more just about creating this this atmosphere of a of an empty earth, this alien presence among it, which I feel like the song does very well, especially the Mellotron opening. You had mentioned yeah. that it makes everything sound empty, and the fact that they, in their wording, use an empty earth. Ooh. See, I didn't pick up on that. I was just kind of like the visual of the uh, album cover plus that sound. Just it was kind of just I don't know. And that opening chord, what is it? It's like a it's like a major seven or something. Doesn't I sound... I had seen what it was. I can't. I think it's like a like a F major seven over A or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense because major sevens are like they're happy, but they don't know why. You know, um, when you get to those crazy like major extensions, it starts to sound really beautiful or really ponderful or really just confused if you use it in the way that you're wanting to. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of great jazz songs will end with like some kind of major nine. And uh, I think, uh, what's it called? Um Anyway, there's one from the Charlie Brown Christmas that ends in like a major nine. The official version ends in like a C major nine. And it's nice and resolutive because for jazz, anything that isn't dissonant is resolutive, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, and so when it opens with that major seven, the fact that it opens with major seven doesn't doesn't surprise me because it's just it's just kind of empty. Yeah. So, um, and it like having that Mellotron helps that feeling as well. If it came in with like a bunch of distorted guitars and like crazy fast drumming it wouldn't sound empty obviously you know it's it's the notes are important but obviously the instrument that's playing it is important as well and i think genesis understands that so well obviously they understand that's what they did but um yeah so that's a long tirade to talk about um major extensions yeah <laughs> Um, I love that we have the um, the reprise at the very end of the song of that of the end of the Mellotron section. Oh yeah, big hits. Yes, it's true. And it's a it's an admirable first song to get us started on our journey. Yeah, to 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 not buy into any of the prog stereotypes either. Yeah, at the same time, it feels comfortable enough. Right. Because, I mean, like, you have that little rhythm. It's that's I feel like that's a very, like, typical prog rhythm. Like, I think of something like, yes is, yours is no disgrace. Like, something that's very percussive and very rhythmic in nature. Or, you know, again, you think of the future of something like YYZ. Like, that's kind of become something that's stereotypical of prog is to have some kind of, like, Morse code-like rhythm. That's true. Yet, yet everything around it is so fresh and wild that 
it gives you something familiar if you're a prog fan to latch on to, but also a new way to think of how a song like this could be played. Mm-hmm. That's true. And well, it, what I mean, like it doesn't buy into the stereotypes, it doesn't buy into the stereotypes structurally. Yeah, there's no solos in this song. There's no solos. There's really not that intense instrumental section. I mean, there's like the guitar lead line. There's that little breakdown section, but it doesn't go into like a weird voiceover section or like all of a sudden now we're in like a different key completely, right? And now we're in like a different meter completely. And so it it doesn't get that third wavy. It just mm-hmm. stays very much in the mood that it was. There's some different moments in there. And I thought to say it sounds exactly the same throughout the whole song, but it doesn't, it kind of subverts expectations when you think of prog, at least for me. So, yeah. but all that to say, we get into, unless there's anything more, we get into our second song, which is the first of fifth. I don't know if that's supposed to sound like first of fifth. No, the, the title actually has nothing to do with the song. Okay, nice. <laughs> it's it's one of those ones they put in as a joke. Um, the uh, the there was a river either near where they were recording or like just near like where one of them lived called the Fourth, and a Firth mm-hmm. is like a little island or inlet, and so like where I guess either they were or where they were recording was the Firth of Fourth. And Tony was just like, well, what if we call it the Firth of Fifth? It's kind of a it rhymes. It's kind of silly sounding. And then just through happenstance, it became the title of that song. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that so, is an interesting story. Yeah. So, I mean, we start once again with a, I guess you could say keyboard. It's a piano now. A piano. Yeah. This is a, this is a real piano. So quite virtuosic. Yeah. I can say so myself. I would say this is probably Tony Banks' greatest keyboard moment. Really? Like, oh my gosh. This is this is a truly spectacular piece of piano playing. So did he write this? Yes. Well, he wrote oh, this my. section. This was a song that was Frankenstein together by different parts from different people. Yeah, okay. I can kind of tell. But um, this this initial piece was provided by Tony and really Tony was the driving force behind this song in particular Mm -hmm. Um, he came up with a lot of the parts although really by the time you get to the end this is one of Steve Hackett's great performances as well oh man but I mean it it makes you wait for it too Mm -hmm. because you've got that kind of slow verse section where everything kind of takes a little bit of a step back. We're back into what sounds like 4-4, especially compared to Watcher of the Skies. It's <laughs> slower. It's more uh, palatable to maybe a, a casual listener who's not into prog. Um, At least until uh, until we get to the in- instrumental section. Oh, true, 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 true. So, um, and then I think there's like that little flute section in there. Yeah, so um, you're going to hear flute often in Genesis songs, and that is played by Peter Gabriel. They didn't have a uh, they didn't have a session musician come in and play that. That is kind of cool. Peter was always someone that felt uncomfortable 
just like standing around and not contributing during long instrumental passages. It's one of the reasons why he ended up becoming so crazy with his stage persona is that when he had these long instrumental parts, he could go off stage and get into his next costume. Ah, smart. Or he would um, furiously bang the tambourine, or a lot of times he would get a little bass drum that he could just stand and do the kick pedal for. Ah, like Slipknot style. Or he could play flute. He yes. just he 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 was very resolute that he was not going to be a front man that would just like stand by and wait for his part to come back in. And because of that, also he whenever he felt like he could get away with it, he would try and insert as many vocal parts. It's why solos really were not as important in Genesis songs. This song is kind of very unique that you have an extended solo section. This mm-hmm. is this is not normal for a Genesis song. Mm-hmm. Usually you have quite a bit of lyrics in most Genesis songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, just again, he's not a James Labrie that's got his little little cubby behind one of the amps that he just kind of sits in and drinks water until it's time for him to come back out. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, well, I mean, and and like you mentioned, there's a lot of lyrics in a lot of these songs. Mm-hmm. It's hard to pick out an extended instrumental section, but that's not to say there isn't instrumental sections in these other songs, right? Um, because definitely, you know, we have some great instrumentalists that kind of want to, you know, show off a little bit, which is totally fine by me. I'll listen to it. Uh, but yeah, and so we have that another startling change right before that flute. I guess you call it flute solo, quote unquote. Uh-huh. Um, it's almost like it's a different song again. Very yeah. opethy, like now we're in a different section, you know, but it's it's not necessarily like a push and pull, like, oh, we didn't spend enough time there. Now we're on to this other thing. It's like they spent the right amount of time in that little verse section. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then they go down to that that down section. Sounds very octavarium with that flute and the yeah. really just weird chord progression that just... I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if they almost completely lifted that cuz it's really really close to the octavarium theme and it's it's so it's the same kind of weirdness like it doesn't sit in you know a major mode quite right but, but it's also it's a brilliant bit of foreshadowing because that melody that the flute plays becomes the main theme of the guitar solo it does it does and man that's a great that's a great moment but i mean there's that long uh what is it called keyboard gosh how do i not remember yeah and you've got the and you've got the the return of that opening melody yes where it comes in but this time it's on the keyboard and and oh man phil does some really great stuff during that Mm -hmm. and it's very fast too yes like he doesn't stop playing notes so and then we get to that nice extended like three and a half minute guitar solo mm-hmm. and they do this crazy thing with the mix and i don't know if that's the instrumentalist or somebody writing the fader but at the end of the chord progression it's gotten a little bit quieter than it was at the beginning and then they come in loud again for that beginning so it sounds more intense every time they come around and I think mm-hmm. they are also playing a little bit louder as well. Yeah, I think that they're they're intentionally um, using some dynamic shift. 
but there's probably also a little bit of work coming from behind the board as well right so and i think that's just um a side effect of not having as tough of compression or i should say as harsh of compression as we do in modern music especially for drums right Drums mm-hmm. are compressed so much in modern music that you don't have a lot of dynamics left because you want every single hit to sound the same. That's just what you want in modern music. And they didn't do that because Phil can really quiet those drums way down when he wants to. Yes. And that allows the band to quiet down as well because they don't have to compete with the drums anymore. So every time they repeat that chord progression, they can get louder. They have room to do that. And it's just, oh, it just cascades this wonderful, like every time they go through the progression, it sounds, uh, it just sounds bigger and better and you just never want it to end. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony and Steve have always very famously not gotten along very well. And um, one of the running jokes in Genesis is that um, when Tony's talking about one of their albums, he always, when he's talking about the weakest parts of a record or a song, it's always Steve's part. <laughs> like, he'll be like, oh, I don't really like that song. I think that's the weakest song on the record, and it ends up being one of the few songs that's like a Steve Hackett composition. Or he'll be like, I just don't really like when the guitar comes in right here. And it's just like, well, of course. And then he always praises like his keyboard part. But one of the big um, proud moments, and this is how you know that this is a one of those ones that were it's like they couldn't deny how great the guitar solo was in this song and tony in the interview is just like i gotta admit that this is one of genesis great moments is that guitar solo Mm -hmm. that nice oh i forgot about this i'm listening to the song right now and i forgot about the reprisal of the verse at the end yeah comes in at just the right point for a song being like nine minutes long everything sticks around for exactly the amount of time it should. Right. It almost kind of surprises you how much they fit into nine minutes, mm-hmm. which is really surprising because when you think of something so long, like getting to double digit numbers, you think there's going to be these long sections and you're kind of going to get bored, but you don't really, I mean, maybe the first listen you'll get bored, but what do you notice to pick out those really nice gems in the song oh man yeah and you can't forget about that that lovely piano outro yes yes to just tie it right back in the beginning very very yes of them to do that i know this is this is a strangely yes again this is this is this is more typical prog um, right. It's it's got a lot of the recapitulation and the use of theme and variation, and it, this this song kind of is a lot more classical in its structure than a lot of their other songs are. Mm-hmm. So again, through these first couple songs, we're we're playing to more traditional prog elements that still have their own unique aspects to it but we're going to find as we get further into the set that things are going to continue to get decidedly less and less traditional prog yes indeed did we talk about the meaning of this song um it's more of just a generic journey song journey yeah like okay 
Oh, you like, okay? Not like, like "Don't Stop Believing" journey. Okay. No, like you're going on a journey. Gotcha. It's pretty. It's it seems to be medieval themed. Um, just again, this the lyrics are more meant to add to the um, to the imagery that the music is creating. Ah, so it's not like coming up with cool sounding words like "yes." It's it's still trying to find words that fit the mood. Yes, but it's still not it's not as much telling a story. Is that going to change throughout the set? Not until we get to the final song. Ah, so our our next two songs even though they are concept record songs. Spoiler alert. You could have looked at the Spotify playlist listeners, so it's really not that much of a spoiler. But um, even though they're from the concept record, they're not going to have a lot of meaning. They, again, the next ones will have more meaning, but it's still, like, you can't view them as, like, story. There's no message, really. There might be. <laughs> okay. It's just really cryptic. Okay, well, we should get into that then. Yeah, let's go to our third song, In the Cage. In the Cage. We're on The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway now. So this is 76? No, 74. 70. Wow. This is 74. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. This... Wow. Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is such a fun record to listen to. Again, I kind of... It seems like I might have been a little hard on it with saying that there's some filler, but even still, that filler is pretty cool. And it's still one of the more unique prog records you'll ever listen to. It's it's even more atmospheric than most other Genesis material is. This is one of the few songs on the record that's very performance-based. Where you've got a lot of really wild, crazy parts. Yeah, there's like some Echella Rondos in here, which is like a modern no. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, unless you get to the end of the song and you're just going crazy and you're Guns N' Roses, right? You usually don't do any acceleration. Yeah. But they put it in, like, the, the middle of the song, just somewhere randomly. And yeah. It which... sounds amazing. And it's, it's like, it fits the kind of the mood of the song as well. Mm-hmm. The whole song is... So this takes place early in the concept record. Okay. I think this is, like, the... It's the fifth song... But it's the second major song of the of the album. Like you've got the you've got the big opener, which that's a song we could listen to in our after hours segment because it's glorious. Ooh. Um and then you've got like three smaller songs, like each of them are like two minutes long. And then this is like the big song that closes out. Although there is a, a mini song at the end of this, it's the it's the main thing that happens before the end of side one. Mm -hmm. And so let, let me, let me try and explain a little bit about what the lamb lies down on Broadway is all about. So you've got this guy named rail and he's kind of your main protagonist. Okay. Which I think is probably intentional. Rael Gabriel. So he's living in New York city. He's a gangster. He's a, a vagrant he um you know he's a he's violent he 
um, graffitis all over the subways. Like he's he's not a good character. Mm-hmm. And one day he walks out of the subway station and sees a lamb lying down on Broadway, and he doesn't know what it means. And all of a sudden, like he enters like this Alice in Wonderland like surreal alternate reality. And that's where he pretty much stays for almost the rest of the record with like one major exception. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's unclear why he's in there. It's, it's obviously, I think it's meant to be like metaphorical. Um, There's probably a lot of connection to Gabriel's feelings of being in Genesis and leaving Genesis Mm -hmm. and his own, feelings of being trapped and kind of metamorphosizing mm-hmm. because because there is there is a change that happens throughout the record through Rael like he obviously in the cage is kind of his moment when he really realizes that he's not in his own reality anymore and it seems like he's in some kind of purgatory like he's Ooh. he's being he's being judged for his sins before he and he he has to go through a a a trial by fire before he can actually start his journey because mm-hmm. once he gets out of the cage that's when he starts to visit all of these crazy fantastical places but he starts off in this cave a cage in a cave and he can't get out he sees all these other cages around him filled with people um he flashes in and out of what seems to be this fantastical place and in a straitjacket in a mental hospital so we don't know if maybe like that's what's really happening and in the real world he's been taken to a mental institution but in this imaginary place he's in this metaphorical cage mm-hmm. um the, probably the most significant thing happens, though, is that he sees his brother John outside of the cage, who is a recurring character throughout, someone that he's constantly chasing. But the brother always refuses to help him. Every time he sees his brother, he's in a moment, in a place of desperation and needing someone to help him and john never does but at the very end of the story john's the one that's in need of help he's drowning in a river and rael is presented with a choice either he can help his brother who so far up to this point has never helped him never even given him a word of pity or he can escape back to the real world and get out of this nightmare hellscape Mm-hmm. And he chooses to go and save his brother. Okay. And at the very end, he reaches his brother drowning in the river, and he sees that it's actually not his brother, it's himself. And it kind of ends like that, and I don't know if that means that he needed to save himself by saving others. It's not completely clear. You can you can take whatever interpretation of that you want, but that idea of him constantly, his brother kind of being the one of the focal characters of his of his journey starts here in the cage. Okay, I actually am kind of I don't know if there's any meaning at all. 
I do not care, but that is a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> it could be just that there's lots of loose themes kind of slightly tied together around a story, but I think it doesn't really matter. I think that this is one of those stories that if you overthink it, you'll lose the point. Yeah. It's it's more to be experienced rather than to to try and think your way through it because if you let just the music take you, it's a much more rewarding experience rather than trying to go, but wait, why are they doing this here? What does it mean? Yeah. Good point, good point. So I I think it's it's meant to be more of like a collection of vignettes where he's he's con he's constantly going to these fantastical places and it's less about him maybe like learning something is more of just an excuse to kind of put him in another fantastical landscape. Hmm. But Sorry. there are there are some slight overarching themes throughout, like the brother John and um and kind of Rael's character in general, but it's it's complicated. I, I I'll I'll quit at this point so I don't continue to confuse anyone. Yeah, well, let me tell you. Let's talk about the music now. Let's talk about the music. I was about to say. I mean, we got some pretty great keyboard lines once again. We Whoa, have that first solo. Like, oh yeah, man! Oh my incredible. Goodness. And there's like right, right. Tony so. Banks really does not get enough credit as one of the great rock keyboard players. Mm-hmm. Like he never, his name is never in because it just again people always just think of him as the pop guy from Genesis. Mm-hmm. I I feel like he was in that same league as Richard Wright and Rick Wakeman and all those great keyboard players like that. I could dare most any keyboard player to try and play that solo and they would not be able to play it. Yeah. That's true. Well, and then also you can't discount the fact that Phil is putting in some little, you know, what is it, Splash or something you would know. Maybe it's just he hitting the crown of the ride during these particular moments in the keyboard solo to highlight these particular notes, and it sounds really cool. And mm-hmm. there's some cool chord changes where now all of a sudden they're in like a minor key. and Yeah, when it slows down to the, the point where he sees John. Yeah, it's a deliciously dark moment. And... Um, and Gabriel is really is really creepy in this song, like that opening line of "I've got sunshine in my stomach" is is really unsettling, because again, you you hear it and your first thought is going to go to my girl. I've got sunshine on a cloudy day, mm-hmm. and I think that that was intentional to kind of subvert some your expectation. To go, I've got sunshine, you're expecting. And then he goes, in my stomach. And it's just like, it just doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. And and then, yeah, just the desperation as he continues to realize that he's trapped and he can't get out. 
the panic continuing to ensue, which of course is greatly mirrored by everyone continuing to play faster and faster. It's that mm-hmm. you can feel the heartbeat accelerating the, that he's, he's realizing more and more I'm trapped. I'm like a caged animal backed into a corner and I have to figure out a way to get out. Yeah. And you have that kind of like flanged tone of Peter Gabriel's voice. Mm-hmm. And then they get into that section where it's like everything's kind of EQ'd differently. So you sound like your head's underwater. Oh, man. It was a good choice. This song um, was one of the few songs that, even in the m- more recent Genesis tours, kind of is able to find its way in. It's usually part of a medley. Though they'll combine this with the cinema show and um, different parts of Supper's Ready. But this is one, like, even in their 2007 tour, which was the last one before the one that they're on now, um, you know, they still played parts of, they didn't play the whole thing, but they played parts of In the Cage. So this has kind of always been one of those ones that has been able to endure and has become a classic Genesis song. So it's been able to survive. Good, good. I mean, it's, it's, it is a step up. I can see what you're saying. Like it is a step up from the previous two songs. We're now into some much more technical stuff. Mm-hmm. And with our next song, we're going to get even more experimental, but in a completely different way. Ooh, okay. Are, so let's we're go. Go to back in New York City, even though it's NYC. I'm just going to call it back in New York City. Um, This actually is the song that opens up side two. So there's only one little mini song on the album that separates In the Cage and back in NYC. They did sound kind of kind of like they flow together. but Yeah, because you still got that bump, 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 because that starts off both of them. And I figured that that would be a good little transitioner. Right. And it's got a great opening synth line. Mm-hmm. Like that arpeggiator. Is he doing that manually? I'm, I, I'm not quite sure. I, I, I know about keyboards, but only so much because I don't play them. But whatever he's doing, it sounds really cool. It does sound really cool. It sounds very... Um, uh, Later than 1974, I'll tell you that. Man, it very ahead of their time once again. Yeah. Uh, Tony has talked about the... Um, he said that whenever keyboards r- were coming out, and it was in about the early to mid-70s that the first synthesizers were really starting to come out. We use synthesizer kind of as a an umbrella term for anything that's an electronic keyboard. But a yeah. synthesizer is a much more particular thing. It's much more about programming. Like you, synthesizers in the early days didn't come with presets. You had to like manually configure all the sounds. But that was the thing that a synthesizer allowed you to do was allow you to have like a couple of bass sounds. But then you had all these knobs to where you could you could manufacture your own unique sound. And you could use the synthesizer to program other instruments and vocals and all that other stuff. So Tony was very adamant that with any keyboard or synthesizer he had, 
that he was going to use it to the maximum capacity that he was going to explore every sound that he's like most keyboardists today do not appreciate what they have because they of all of the different sounds they have the thousands upon thousands they'll maybe use three or four of them total that's me (laughs) and he's just like that's such a waste because they there's so much that you can do with it and that's something that i've always been intentional about is to try and not use the same sound more than once to try and and get the most out of every single possible sound that's cool and because i guess when you do that you learn a lot about what every knob does and then you'll be able to find the particular sound that you have in your head Mm -hmm. and that's really when things get very interesting yeah um this is one of those songs that really makes me love Prague. I, I talked about this when we did the and you and I song in our yes episode. Yeah. About how it's it's not at all like your typical Prague song. It doesn't even though back in New York City has some really complex moments, they're not in the way that you normally hear in Prague songs. Uh-huh. Like it's, that uh, moment where Peter Gabriel's layered over himself like three times. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really great moment. And it's, you don't see that in anything ever. Yeah. You know? You've got that brief loan, that bam, 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 da, 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 And they're like switching between like ending with three hits and four hits. and But then you've also like the main part of the song is just this simple like seven, eight groove. And it's all centered around that that arpeggiating keyboard line and Peter Gabriel's incredibly aggressive vocals. That is seven eight. Now That's it, crazy. I I doesn't feel like seven eight. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah. seven. They play it very naturally. But yeah, like Gabriel's vocals are really actually the main driving force of this song. Mm-hmm. It's it's really more of like a just a really weird, interesting rock song. Yeah, it it sounds kind of um, I don't even know. It sounds a little dark. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, it's kind of a dark album, from what I understand. So. It is. Let's talk about where it is in the story. Does it fit anywhere particular in the story or is it just kind of... So from my perspective, like the second half of the second side is all like Rael's backstory. I think that what he's doing is he's actually, after he has his moment of purgatory in the cage, he like gets to view his life, kind of like kind of like his his trial where he's he's having to confront who he used to be because what it is it's just the song is about a about a ruthless man prowling the streets cuz he's talking about he doesn't care who he hits and um about all of the women that he has taken advantage of all of the people that he has beat up and all of the places that he's vandalized pretty much the whole song is just about a punk kid doing whatever he wants on the streets of New York. 
it's a it's a quadrophenia moment. But you have that opening line of seeing places and traces of home back in so it gives me the impression that it's almost like he's viewing this on like some kind of like television monitor. Like he's looking back and seeing how he became the person he is and why he's on this journey to I guess like change that part of him. Hmm. Cause the cause he talks about um talking about shaving his his the hair out of his heart. I don't really know what that metaphor means, but the next song is an instrumental ambient track called Hairless Heart. And then after that is a really cool underrated Genesis song called Counting Out Time, which is about all of the sexual uh, hangups that he had in his youth. And then after that, it transitions back into the story. Like back into it's like those those three songs are showing him his previous life, and then it's back to the journey, back to the journey for the second half of side two. Yeah, which really it's I guess when I think about it, that's when the journey really begins because he's not he hasn't moved a lot up until that point, and after that, that's when he like starts to just enter all of these crazy dimensions. Uh, have we considered the possibility that someone had a bad trip and then wrote this? Um, I'm going to say no. Okay. Because that wasn't really their thing. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, they... was, it was the early 70s. I just, you know, didn't know. Yeah, but the prog groups in particular never really participated in that stuff. I don't know. I mean, you listen to some King Crimson stuff, and you gotta think, man. Probably. But also at the same time, like, I know Yes didn't. That was not their thing. I never came across anything in Genesis saying that they either struggled with drugs or even did drugs recreationally. I know Phil didn't. And he Mm -hmm. never talked about any of his bandmates doing it. They... They were not part of like the the rebellious kid group, part of that that um, the swinging sixties counterculture. Mm-hmm. They were like brought up in like private school, and you know went to an all male prep school, and like they were came from upper middle class families. They didn't have that like we're going to rebel against the system environment. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, who knows? Maybe they did. But I never came across any proof saying that they did. Okay. So, we have considered that possibility, I guess. (laughs) It could be, it couldn't be. It's another thing you can throw into the hat of what the heck is The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway actually about. Right. Well, it would be unlikely is what I'm saying. So... Okay, I just wanted to rule that out because you know we did have we did have quadrophenia be about be the genesis point no pun intended of quadrophenia was a bad trip so um yeah and so I mean once again like I don't want to say once again but back in New York features a lot of very good instrumental sections yes well a lot of very good instrumental moments maybe not sections where 
Peter's still singing, but great instrumental things are happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that this song really kind of gives it this and in the cage really gives into kind of that stereotypical prog brain more at so this, than Watcher of the Skies really did. At this point, yeah, all feelings of what a prog song normally is is kind of like out the door. Right, right, but we're still get we're still like throwing a little bit of scraps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our next song. In the interest of time, we should probably move on. But the probably. next song, and I want to hear the story about this song because I know there's a partic- very particular story, and I completely forgot it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it is The Carpet Crawlers. And this is a much more pop-ish song. Yes. So this is also from The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Oh. But this is a different version of the song. This is the 1999 version. And the Genesis purists might be groaning at their listening device right now. <laughs> um, but I want to I wanna talk about why I picked it. First off, I don't like to always just pick what is obvious. Um, it might also just be the fact that I've heard this version so many more times than the original. But I just think this version's better. Hmm. I like it more. It's got it's got more of what I feel like was the initial intention of the song, which is this this strange haunting lullaby. While at the same time, this is this is actually what comes right after the trilogy of songs on side two of the Lamb. This is the point where the the journey actually begins. Ah, so we kind of followed the chronology with these three songs. Yeah, we didn't go out of order, although we definitely skipped a lot in between. Is it wrong of me to say that this sounds like Disney soundtrack? <laughs> um, I mean, again, it's this this version is from 1999, so that probably wouldn't be too. This would have been probably right after Phil finished doing all the stuff for Tarzan. That's true. Yeah, Tarzan came out in '99, so. I mean, is is the instrumentation like a reimagining? It very is, much is. Oh, it is. Not, uh-huh. like, the, not like a like a kind of re-recording. Maybe maybe fix some things we got wrong. It's a reimagining. Yeah, but I mean, obviously the vocal melody is the same. Right. Um, it's the the album version is a lot more atmospheric and a little bit more kind of disturbing Mm -hmm. it doesn't have that comfort of the pop production it does sound very comfortable but i mean again just with the inherent chord structure there is this um there is this kind of this this uneasiness to it Hmm. i don't know we did come from some kind of uneasy songs yeah Again, it, I feel like it's much more subtle, but there's like there's there's a there's moments occasionally where it feels like there's something hiding under the surface. They what? That's true, but they could also get away with making this song be about something completely wholesome and normal. Yes, and I think that that was why this this was kind of always earmarked as a potential single is because it was one of the songs on the record that they could kind of 
divorce away from the concept. There's no mention of Rael or any of the other characters. I mean, it's still to a certain extent kind of hard to understand because it's like, what are carpet crawlers? What is yeah, this what imagery? The fleas cling to the golden fleas, hoping they'll find peace. Like, what is that all about? Um, the salamander scurries into the flame to be destroyed. It's like, it's still got the wild, bizarre imagery of the lamb lies down on Broadway, but at the same time, you've got that that hook of we've got to get in to get out that is kind of like, oh, that's just, that could be about anything. Yeah, so what are those little particulars? Like, what do you think those are meaning? Or do you not have a theory? I just, I don't know. I th- Honestly, I think it's just meant to to illustrate a setting that is imaginative and colorful kind of like it's to show that there's somewhere that's not of this earth the whole image that it's showing is that you've got these 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 hooded people crawling across a carpet trying to get to this stairway that leads to the top and um they uh once once you get to the top of the staircase in the next song it leads to the passage of 32 corridors and oh. it just leads into another kind of scenario that's i think supposed to be a metaphor about how life gives you an infinite number of decisions but you can't figure out which one's the right one so i prefaced this song with talking about how there's a very particular story about it that i forgot so what what was that because i did forget so um obviously 1999 the original lineup of genesis was not um in formation in fact the pop era of genesis was not even in formation during this time there's actually a third version of genesis i mean fourth technically if you want or fifth like you've got the the first couple of records where you've got the different drummers and the different guitarists you've got the classic five-person lineup. You've got the four-person lineup when Peter left, but Steve hadn't left yet. Then you've got the three-person version that is the pop version, Mike, Tony, and Phil. But then they made one more album after Phil left to fully concentrate on the solo career where they got a different lead singer. And it was a a terrible record. Oh. I mean, like, it pretty much, like, ended Genesis's career. That is bad. Yeah. I guess we're going to be seeing that in the After Hours segment. Unfortunately not, because I didn't get that far into the discography. Oh, man. I know. it's. I had a lot of music to get through. Um, But I have heard parts of it, and it's, it's Genesis trying to be 90s alt rock. Oh, no. Yeah, it's not good. But that crashed and burned pretty hard. And... So the idea was, well, dang, now we got to we got to go back to to kind of how things were. And so the initial idea was, let's get the 70s era back together and do a classic era tour and do kind of all the old stuff. And re-recording carpet crawlers was kind of like to get people hyped for this upcoming tour. Oh, and did it happen? Nope. Why? 
Peter and Steve couldn't get an agreement with Mike and Tony. And of course, Phil stuck around because he's Phil. And so Peter and Steve pulled out and that's when, and Mike and Phil were just like, well, why don't we just do an eighties reunion tour? And that ended up being the last tour. Uh, so that that was back 20 years ago now was the last time they toured. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's such a big deal that they're touring now. Yeah. It's been, it's been a long time. Wow. wow. So, but it, does it, it did, we're not touring with all of them, are we? No, it's, it's just the, it's just Tony, Mike, and Phil. Peter and Steve won't be a part of it. Wow. And it's likely to be the, it is likely to first, because they never announced after that was like, oh, we're touring. It's just an indefinite hiatus. But it was, it had looked for a long time like they would never tour again. So there's no hope of them playing our next song live. I don't know. I'm holding out hope. I I think there's a chance it could happen. There's, there is always a chance, but I guess we'll find out. So we can go ahead and go to that next song because it is long and there's a lot of parts to it. Oh, gosh. It's going to be so hard to not talk about this for an hour. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but this is this is uh, the end of Foxtrot, right? So mm-hmm. your first Genesis record. This You told me it was a big staple as far as prog epics go it can contend with octavarium 2112 and the like and could theoretically come out on top because it's got great you know however you described it it's got great meaning great instrumentation great writing um so this is of course supper's ready ah yes the sidelong epic that doesn't even take up the whole side no, almost does. It almost does. There's that one minute thing before it. Mm-hmm, we got, uh, which is a beautiful uh, Steve Hackett acoustic guitar it, moment it, called Horizons. It's almost like they had more than 48 minutes of music and they're just trying to pack the record full. Like they just, they had a ton of music and they just want to put it as much on as possible. Yeah, they did. It's amazing. So, so suffers- Supper's ready, man. What a what a behemoth of a song. I would say at this point it's the longest song to ever be featured on the Good Music podcast. Ooh, is it? It's long. I mean, maybe Echoes. I think Echoes is long. I think Echoes like twenty eight or something. No, it's not twenty eight. I know it's also twenty three. So it depends oh. on the seconds. Which one has the right, longest? Because seconds it can't count. be longer than the the vinyl. Yeah. Um. Twenty three thirty one. So it does. It does win out. Supper's ready. Does no echoes does. Okay. Um, well, it's definitely one of the longest. Oh, for sure. The Second fact that we had to look it up. The fact that we had to look it up already tells you that. Uh huh. So, and I, I, one of my favorite things about Supper's Ready is that it just gets right to it. It does. You hit play, and immediately you hear, walking across the sitting room. 
and you're just right in the middle of it first normally i feel like this is very antithetical to sidelong epics i feel like yeah most of the time you've got to have like that long intro you know you've got like you've got the you've got the submarine sounds of echoes you've got the spacey sounds of 2112 you've got the the nature sounds of close to the edge mm-hmm. you've got the you've got the 5 minutes of whale sounds in octavarium um, whale sounds and especially even if you have a side long epic that uh is going to you know get right to it doesn't get right to it usually with the words yeah you know it's 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 quite strange but it works so well oh, I it's love just it. because the whole point in this first scene is to just put you right in the middle of a normal day-to-day scenario you know they're a, a loving couple is about to eat their red their dinner supper's ready mm-hmm Hey, babe, your supper's waiting for you. Hey, babe, don't you know our love is true? And and it's got that nice, I don't want to say simple. It's quite virtuosic, the guitar playing that's happening. There's layered guitars, and there's some little diddlies it's, in there that sound really cool. It's but three 12-string acoustics. That makes sense. Because and it sounds, it doesn't necessarily sound thin nor big. But it does take up the whole sound, and it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's Tony, Mike, and Steve playing. Oh, nice! So it's not just Steve layering himself multiple times. It's all three of them know how to play uh, acoustic guitar pretty well. Because that was the majority of of Genesis' first two records was acoustic stuff. Man, let me tell you, the details in this song. I mean, you have at the at the very beginning, you know, right after that first verse, you have these weird, like, Ghost of Cariella Mastodon kind of chorus coming in there just randomly for, you know, about five or six seconds. Mm-hmm. But it really adds to this ominous nature. It's kind of foreboding of what's, like, we're about to listen to. And you have this very simple sounding keyboard solo. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's, we're going to, I think the best way we could talk about the song is to just take it piece by piece because we got yes. seven sections and let's talk about what the song overall is about, because this is the one instance where I feel like we can have a good handle on what the story is. Although there's still some references and metaphors that are, are tough to interpret, but this this song and this is confirmed by Peter Gabriel himself. This song is a retelling of the Book of Revelation, which is fitting for Genesis. To yeah, say. I was about to say. Which also is the the name of their first record is called From Genesis to Revelation. So, um, so what we're really starting with is is the inciting incident, the the rapture you could call it. Um. You have, uh, and this was inspired by an actual instance um, between Peter Gabriel and his wife and a couple of other friends that they were at a house party. And he said, all of a sudden, he believes that his wife became possessed. And because she started speaking to him in another voice, 
and started to act very terrifying and that would and would react violently whenever peter would make the symbol of the cross at her weird and that he had nightmares about it for several nights after and yeah, so I that, would. that line of i swear i saw your face change it didn't seem quite right oh and then of course you have the you look out upon the upon the lawn you've got the six saintly shrouded men moving across the lawn slowly the seventh walks in front with the cross held high in hand and so it to me this symbolizes that the the tribulation has begun this the seven year period of judgment upon the earth and so it's 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 an a normal domestic uh situation has been interrupted by the end of the world and i think that that's what the first segment which is called lover's leap is supposed to signify hmm well, and then pretty quickly we come in with that main theme. Mm-hmm. Oh. Which is a great theme. Oh, one, man. One that really gets you at the end of the song. And I, yeah, it really does. And let me tell you, this is this is one of those moments where I'm glad they stuck with the convention. Well, stuck with the convention. The convention didn't really exist yet. But maybe accidentally followed the convention of choosing the theme and having that recapitulation of the theme at the end of the song and throughout the song and stuff, because that's a very powerful tool that um, prog composers will use. I mean, that, that theme throughout um, scenes from a memory, right? For example, Mm -hmm. really ties the whole story together. Quadrophenia, when you have that opening where he's on the beach and you have some of those main themes that come around and whatever. Um, the love reign over me, right? Yeah. And as that kind of goes through the story, it kind of makes you realize, oh, this is like a story. This is how, you know, the different characters come in and this is how the different moods kind of, you know, whatever. And then when you get to the final moment, it all makes sense, both musically and thematically. And it's wonderful. And so I'm glad that they did that mm-hmm. um, and didn't try to completely subvert expectations this time. And maybe that's just a factor of them doing their own thing that, they just decided this is what they're going to do. They didn't even think about what the convention was. And I imagine that's what it is. Yeah. But it's also not just that it's a theme, but there's, there's a very specific reason why the theme returns because right. there's a great parallelism lyrically also when you get to the end of the story. Um, so let's move on to the second section. Mm-hmm. which is um, the introduction of the guaranteed eternal sanctuary man, a.k.a. the Antichrist. Oh, my. And, so, the, and the introduction of the tapping, too. Well, that comes that comes a third section. Oh, see, I don't even know the sections. So this is this is the um, this is the when the band first comes in. You've got the, the line. I, I know a farmer who looks after the farm. I know a fireman who looks after the fire. Which I love, I love those lines as well. So I think that's supposed to represent like you've got um, you've got the farmer that no one pays attention to, but is the one that's actually cultivating life. You've got the fireman who looks after the fire, someone that's cultivating death, and he's the one that is the guaranteed eternal sanctuary man. Which I'll just call him Antichrist from now on. But that's that's what I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. 
he's the one that's actually it's a it's a much more fantastic thing to look at a flame especially a flame that is wild and out of control yeah and it's the thing that people are drawn to but it's actually a tool of destruction and throughout this whole thing he's um he's selling his his lie he's um he's a supersonic scientist um he says look into my mouth i bet my life you'll walk inside pretty much saying he's telling it was just like i'm gonna tell you right now that i'm going to destroy you yet you will willfully walk into it without even thinking about it Hmm. pretty much kind of asserting his control and his deception and again this will also be um uh revisited melodically at the end of the song and it's mm-hmm. going to be a comparison between um the antichrist and and the lord because mm-hmm. you've got that you've got that that's the same chord progression and melody that comes in at the very end of the song mm-hmm. but we have we have that great little creepy moment where it just all of a sudden stops and in comes in what I think has always been one of the most creepy things ever, and that's English children singing. Oh yeah, man, gosh! I why it was is creepy it on the wall? Why is why are English children so scary <laughs> with their little accents? It's always creepy. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's why Doctor Who fits so well as a horror show. Yeah, that's true. That's that is what I think of. Yeah. Are are you my mummy? Oh my gosh, I forgot about that episode. Oh my <laughs> lord. Well, I am gonna lose some sleep tonight. The wife possession, and now are you my mummy? It's over. You're welcome. I'm staying. I'm staying up all night. I'm gonna get some work done. <laughs> so next is the um, the Battle of Armageddon. Right. So this is this is this is the war between um, the followers of the Antichrist and uh, the remnant of the believers. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, and I mean, I mean, it's pretty much, it spells it out that this is, this is a great battle. Mm-hmm. And you have this, this great triumphant battle music. And this is where another one of Steve Hackett's great moments comes in. This is the tapping that we have been talking about this whole time. Mm-hmm. Right. I remember when we were listening to this together and it got to the tapping section and like the, the look on your face is like, what? I was just kind of confused. I was just, I, I couldn't tell if it was a keyboard or not still. But it is definitely them playing together. Right. I didn't know if it was like a keyboard doubling or something. I don't know. Nope. Because it's like, it sounded like tapping, you know, what's the guitar part doing it's a tapping part whatever but obviously i guess my intuition was right even though my brain said no eddie van halen invented tapping <laughs> i guess I, I guess i've finally been proven wrong once yep. and for all he popularized it he didn't invent it though mm-hmm. well yeah so, so. We actually end this section with the uh, with the with the enemies triumphing. Yes, 
today is a day to celebrate the foes have met their fate. Mm-hmm. And this is this is this is actually the side of evil winning. And um and it's it is very interesting that the the whole mood of this battle is is triumphant and happy sounding. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a sound of of horror and oh no we're losing. The music is taking the perspective again it's it's the feeling of our our central protagonist which is the couple from the beginning. This is kind of the moment where you feel like they kind of switch sides. Because it's insinuated that they're the ones that initially follow the antichrist. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the it's this battle that kind of sends them on a different trajectory because they're the ones that wander the the aftermath of the battle with with genuinely one of the again one of the creepiest things I've ever heard in a song. You've got yeah. that you've got those you've got those reverb backwards piano chords and some really disturbing lyrics. We climb up the mountain of human flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, a young figure sits by a pool. He's been stamped human bacon by some butcher. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, I remember the first time I listened to this song and like the image that was like being formed in my mind, like kind of scared me. Yeah. And it didn't help that you had the creepy instrument too. Mm-hmm. Like you can't tell what it is. It has that same very emptying feeling at the beginning of Washer of the Skies. Like yeah. Foxtrot has this weird through line of just being crazy, almost like Origin of Symmetry. Yeah, kind how of. It's, how it's just kind of like, what is happening? And there's like, it's just a blank template. And then they put the weirdest stuff on it, you know. Mm-hmm. So. so this is so this is the fourth segment. Is this is this down section? Yes. And then we've got that brilliant moment of we watch in reverence as Narcissus is turned into a flower. A flower. A flower. Yeah. And then we get into the Willow Farm, the the fifth section, which was actually the first part of the song that was written. Um, this was this was its own standalone song that Peter had written before Supper's Ready was starting to be assembled, and Peter thought that it would fit well into the story. It does and, sound a little bit different than the rest of the song, and yeah. that fits the theme of the section. Uh huh. So now this is kind of like um, this is topsy turvy world. You've got this dark vaudevillian, dark humor that pervades the whole thing. It's very campy, but at the same time, it's got this sinister bite to it. Yeah. And it's, it's just, you it's can... E. McDermott's formula. Yes. Overdo it. Uh-huh. And so, pretty much the, what I gather from this is that the Antichrist now has full control over the world, and he is remaking everything and everyone into what he wants. Mm-hmm. And the the couple, the protagonists, are are trying to navigate and survive this new hostile ever changing world where everyone falls into line with what they're told. Mm-hmm. Everything you think is no longer is what's good is now evil. What's evil is now good. There's Winston Churchill dressed in drag. He used to be a British flag. 
The frog was a prince. The prince was an egg. The egg was a brick. The brick was a man. Yeah. And so it's it's just the whole but the, at the same time it's it's a very fun section. There's so many like just cool hilarious moments. Like, yeah, that is true. Like you've got the you've got the the spoken parts in the middle between the uh in between the sung sections, you've got the sped up vocals. You're down in the soil, soil, soil. Yeah. It is it is kind of just like different. I mean, that's what it's supposed to be, really. Mm-hmm. Is it supposed to not quite sound like the rest of the song because it's supposed to be a little bit sinister. Like um like uh Hunchback of Notre Dame, Topsy Turvy Day, you know? Yeah. I think I think we had another song where I mentioned that. It was another episode where I referenced that specific thing. But um, it is sinister, but without being, like, as creepy. Yeah. Like, there's some different imagery, like some strange imagery, but it's not, like, trying to freak you out, like, piles of human flesh, right? Uh-huh, yeah. Or or the little ambient section that comes right after it. Yeah. Man, I'm listening to it, and I just got to that moment. I completely forgot about this moment. So, yeah. So, anyway, is this now, is this in part six now? It's this, it's kind of unclear. This is, I think this is still considered to be part of part five. But, because part six, I think, officially begins once the vocals come back in. And that's when we get to the craziest part, not, probably not only of this song, but of this entire set, which is Apocalypse in 9-8. And oh, yeah, and um, this is this is the part where the intensity really ratchets up. Mm-hmm. the The creepy sections are no longer constrained to just the slow down parts. Now, as things are picking back up, there's no longer that that fun atmosphere to it. Now it's the 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 danger that has always been lurking underneath is now no longer disguising itself. So I guess the couple that we're following is now actively on the run. uh, On the run. Okay. So like they're fearful for their lives, basically. Uh Uh-huh. Gog and Magog are coming after them and the Antichrist himself. And so this was the first bit of the song that was recorded because this entire section all the nine eight stuff was actually improvised in the studio on the spot. Wow! Like they, um, they did not plan this section. They literally, this was a jam that got caught on tape. That's nice. And and Phil talks about how he was just like, I actually could not be able to replicate what I did in the studio here because I was making it up, and it was just one of those like it was magical in the moment; it could never be repeated. And they all stayed together. Uh huh. Did Peter sing? Well, yes, he did, and they did not expect him to. Mm-hmm. Um, they saw that Peter was about to approach again with the vocals, right at the part where he exclaims very 
menacingly 666. Mm-hmm. And Tony original thought was just like, no, Peter, don't mess this up. This is a great jam moment. But then they said immediately, as soon as they heard him say 666 and go into that next, they were like, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. Um, the last two sections of this song, pretty much every member of Genesis acknowledges that this is their greatest moment. <laughs> and they think that this is this is this is where they made their best material. That suppers they they're like suppers ready, yeah, in general, but specifically Apocalypse in nine eight and as eggs are eggs or whatever the last section's called. Um, I'll call it the New Jerusalem part. They're like this this was the best that we ever did. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you've got this you've got this this big climax of evil as it seems that the protagonist couple has been cornered. They're about to meet their their un, untimely demise. And then all of a sudden everything stops and the chimes come in. And mm-hmm. he comes back with that main theme. And oh, I get chills even now just talking about it. Oh, uh, yeah. It's so perfect. And then that finally takes us into the last, the seventh section, which is uh, supper is once again ready, but it is not a, a modest civilian supper in the suburbs. But now it is the Lord's Supper. He has vanquished evil and he has come to establish his kingdom. And it's such a it's such a brilliant um, reprieve and return to that initial concept. Because it's like when you're listening to the song, you're thinking I was just like, why the heck is this called Supper's Ready? Yeah. It's true. But then when you get to the very end and you realize that it starts with a supper and it ends with a supper, it ends with the supper, it it's all just like, oh my gosh, now it makes complete sense. Yeah. It does. Because I remember yeah. when I saw that they had a 23-minute song called Supper is Ready, I was just like, what the heck could this even be about? It's a kid's song. Yeah, like what is what is what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And then it, and then I remember I heard it and it started is is describing like this this normal setting and I was just like I don't understand and then it continued more. I was just like oh 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 I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, Gabriel just gives it his all on this last section mm-hmm. right we get the return of the of the king crimson mellotron in the mm-hmm. in the last few sections and the return of the uh the melody from the second section again Ooh. it's it's now instead of the false king it is the true king and it's sung with much more passion it's it's sung with lots more power mm. I mean, can you imagine this? This is the the climax point of the set, the catharsis. By the way, in case that wasn't clear when you listened to it, in case that wasn't abundantly clear, this yeah. this might be one of the ultimate catharsis moments we've ever had in a set. 
Yeah. I mean, this this entire moment is pure catharsis because, I mean, not only is it the end of a 23-minute journey, but this is a long journey through the set in of itself. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, to get to this, once you get to this point, it's just like, it's this, it's this glorious, majestic moment. And to end with the lines of, there's an angel standing in the sun and he's crying with a loud voice. This is the supper of the mighty one, Lord of Lord, King of Kings, come to lead his children home, to lead them to the new Jerusalem. And you got... Peter Gabriel spinning around up in the air. <laughs> yep. <laughs> mm. And you know what? The fade out completely works. The fade out, yeah. And it's got it's got the harmonized guitars too, which mm-hmm. is like as far as harmonized guitars go, it's not Dragon's Force, it's not Iron Maiden. But it also is 1972, and it is good. Yeah, it's you know? it's perfect for what they were doing. Right. So I I definitely when that came in, I was like, ooh, that's kind of interesting that they're doing like a little harmonized guitar thing, because you don't really think about like that kind of overdub guitars in Prague. That's not usually you like overdub completely different parts. Like you have a uh, like a rhythm and then a solo or maybe they'll have an acoustic and then an acoustic playing something slightly different but like doing harmonized guitars usually isn't like a and it's certainly not a harmonized guitar section at least from what I can remember of all of my dream theater and Rush listening you know I can't think of anything could be wrong <laughs> but that's not a stereotype that's a stereotype of other genres of other mm-hmm. metal genres and other rock genres you know um, so, I mean, Boston does a lot of harmonized guitars, but here we are in 1972 Prague rock, having a harmonized guitar solo at the end of a 23 minute long epic. And it's perfect. It's got that fade out with the chorus and the fade out was a good choice thematically as well, because like, a, how are you going to end this song musically? But yeah. B it's like, it, it goes into eternity. Like, it will eternally be this way. Amen. Well, I think we successfully made it through Supper's Ready, so... Oh, boy. Well, I'm going to go eat then. (laughs) (laughs) Your supper is waiting for you who? You who? You know what is waiting for me, he? Final thoughts. Yes, so we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about the 70s era of Genesis. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone, to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking for quite a bit of time about uh, Genesis during the 70s, the Prague era with Peter Gabriel as the vocalist. Um, The six songs that we just talked about were Watcher of the Skies, Firth of Fifth, In the Cage, Back in New York City, The Carpet Crawlers, and Supper's Ready. If you want to listen to those songs, I would highly recommend that you do. There's a link in the description of the episode. takes you to the Spotify playlist. 
where you can listen to not just these songs, but all the songs from our previous episodes, including the one from our first Genesis episode. But now it's time to talk about our final thoughts. So Grant, you started out of five. You didn't really know too much about Genesis. Where do you stand now? I'm a seven going on nine. Ooh, baby. Because, and I feel exactly the same way that I did at the end of the Dream Theater episode where I'm like, this is gonna, this is gonna alter the way that I think about music. And I feel like I could very rapidly get to the point where I just listened through their whole discography in the span of a few days, <laughs> you know, depending on how long it is, maybe it'll be a few weeks, but, um, so obviously I'm a seven. I loved all of these songs so much. I mean, my dad got annoyed by them, but whatever, you know. <laughs> so, um, but I loved them. And every time I listened through, I loved it more, which is the mm-hmm. sign of something that's really good and something that's really going to change you too. Uh, because obviously your tastes have to change to be able to like it more. Um, man, just every single, every single one of them. Every single one. The first time I listened, obviously, I did not. It did not really leave a good imprint on me. We actually originally, and we don't like to do a lot of behind the scenes like information, but we were originally going to record this episode at a different time, actually a few days ago, and we had to reschedule. But I'm glad that we did because it gave me a full weekend plus, yeah, this Monday and Tuesday to just listen to these songs over and over and over and over again. That's pretty much all I did was listen to these songs over and over and over and over again. And I'm so glad that I did because I am ready to listen to Foxtrot and The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. I'm probably going to do that. Hopefully I'll be able to listen to both of those by the time we record next time so I can give everybody an update on that. Um, But man, I love like the concept at least from what i know of the lamb lies down on broadway even though it's not really plot driven i still like a good concept record um and i love supper's ready so much i didn't really believe you after the first time i listened you're like oh man this could be as good as octavarium or 2112 it's probably the best prog epic and i listened to it i'm like there is no way this is the best prog epic but figuring out the little pieces that fit together and the little details and everything. I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's like, they, they took the time to put in these little six second details and these little recapitulations and trying to get the tone just right to sound creepy enough, you know? And that is really, really cool. And they didn't rely on these crazy amount of overdubbed vocals. You know, they didn't rely on the huge theatrical um, production as much as the theatrical composition. And that was really, really cool to see that they didn't do a ton of overdubbing. They didn't do a bunch of tricks in the studio. They just wrote good music. And that's amazing to me. Um, gosh, how do I pick a favorite? Um, I don't know. One of them that I kept looking forward to the most was Firth the Fifth. I feel like for the most part, every time I put on the set, you know, I was waiting for Watcher of the Skies to be over so I could listen to that solo of Firth of Fifth. And then when it got to In the Cage, I was like, ooh, man, I can't wait to listen to the set again so I can listen to First Fifth. But, like, it didn't mean that I didn't like the other songs. I really enjoyed In the Cage and all the little different moments. That opening line of Back in New York, right? Carpet Crawlers was a completely different 
vibe from everything else. So that was a nice little, like, different color in there. And, of course, Supper's Ready. You can't, you can't bash Supper's Ready. I'd have to go based off of um, not having our conversation I would, I would have probably picked Firth of Fifth. But after listening intently to Supper's Ready, I got to go with that. Just objectively speaking, it's the better song. And I liked hearing about the little details throughout because that's what makes an epic great is to know that they had 23 minutes of music and every minute was important. Um, and that's the sign of a good band. And, and yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm at a seven. They have the potential to change the way that I think about writing music and listening to music and widening my sphere of appreciation. And maybe it'll get me to appreciate that first era of Prague a little bit more. And yes, yeah, Supper was really my favorite. I'm a seven going on a nine. I just enjoyed this episode so much. I was so excited for this episode. I'm just, All so, right. I'm just, I'm just so happy. I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to talk anymore. Lucas, what's your final thoughts? Okay. Um, so I'm glad that you're going to check out Foxtrot and The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, but I'm also going to give you a, uh, a Phil Collins era album of theirs to check out. Okay. That I think is going to be proggier than you're going to expect. Okay. And that's Invisible Touch. Hey, I know that song. Yeah, it's a great song. <laughs> I thought that was yeah. a Phil Collins song because he sang it. That that whole record is is all, nearly perfect. So you should check that one out as well. Okay. There's there's actually two epics on it that are both I, incredible. I got quite the homework then. Yeah, it's got a ten minute song on there. Oh my! All right. Um, I mean. I would say the biggest thing that's changed for me about Genesis is that there are some sections of their discography that I got to listen to the very first time. I'd actually never listened to their first two records. First record um, is a curiosity, a fascination, but it's not a very good record. But the second record, Trespass, I think might be one of the hidden gems of their discography. It's really, really good. And so I'm glad that I got to discover that. Um, there was a couple of other records I hadn't listened to them before. The kind of the the albums in between Peter leaving and them fully becoming a uh, pop group. So the first couple of records they did with Phil, I had never really listened to before. And so I was glad that I got to hear those. So I would say that I'm still at a nine, but... Um, I feel like there's still songs that I think are going to continue to grow for me. And I'm really excited about that prospect. I think that in particular, as I'm, I feel like I'm just now starting to scratch the surface on lamb lies down on Broadway. And I think that that's the one that's going to have the best uh, chance of really growing for me. And I'm really excited to see that Third song. I mean, I can't go against Supper's Ready. It's it's too magnificent of a com- composition. Right. Not only objectively, but just personally. This was the song that was just like, okay, Genesis, you got me. I'm in. I'm in for this prog part. <laughs> yeah. As far as rankings go, um, I'll also throw in what the rankings were for the songs 
in the first episode. They're all in the top 25. So follow you, follow me from the first episode is at number 23. Back in New York City is at number 21. That's All is at number 18. Just a job to do at number 17. Turn It On Again at number 15. Watcher of the Skies at 14. Throwing It All Away at number 12. At number nine, in the cage at number eight, tonight, tonight, tonight at number six, birth of fifth at number four, and supper's ready at number one. Number one. Woo. Well, of theirs, so, so it doesn't mean that yeah. they're above anyone else. That's mm-hmm. kind of its choice. <laughs> uh, Harry's pick, he really loved birth of fifth the most. Yeah. He really. Like that cool piano part and that it had a silly name. Okay. Well, at least he picked a good song, yeah. Maybe maybe it wasn't for like the objectively correct reason of the awesome guitar solo, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. And that's it. Thank Did you we so much. Kelly's pick? Oh, she didn't listen to these songs. <sighs> I tried to get her to and she's just like, No, I can't do this. What? Uh okay. I tried. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed, please make sure that you hit the subscribe button. We have new episodes every Monday at midnight. Next week, we're going to continue in this theme. I mean, it probably won't be too hard to guess what we're going to be talking about, but I'll still leave it up for speculation. Um, it's going to be just another personal favorite of mine. So uh, make sure that you check that out next week. We have two links in the episode description. One of them takes you to a Spotify playlist with these songs and all of the songs from other episodes. The other link takes you to our Patreon page where you can get access to episodes early and listen to our exclusive segment. We're going (laughs) to keep that in. No edits. Our special segment on the Bad Music Podcast where we talk about an artist's six worst songs. And you can also check us out on Instagram and Facebook. That's the perfect place to let us know what artists you would like for us to cover in the future. And that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. Keep on listening to good music.